Daniel has heard about the decree um, that has been made. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? I think most of us know where the story goes from that point on. Um, So I'll leave it there for the moment. We had a list earlier on about good friends and bad friends. It set me thinking, what about if we were making a list of what makes a good prayer and a bad prayer? But anyway, here's some uh, words. Which best describes your own prayer life? Is it a bit hit and miss? Is it something that's regular? Or is it by routine, I mean a bit of a burden and a heavy duty? Does it lack consistency or is it full of vitality? Is your prayer life non-existent? Or some other words that you might want to choose to describe your prayer life now. And now I make an assumption with this. I'm making an assumption that we as Christians know that as Christians, prayer fits into our discipleship somewhere. Yeah? Um, we know that prayer is part of what we are called to do, that it's important, that in some ways it is vital. And therefore, hence the question, well, how would you describe the way you pray at the moment? What do you make of this comment that I once heard from the lips of my college principal many years ago? A prayerless Christian is a practical atheist. Atheists don't believe in praying to God, so they don't. So what does that make a Christian who doesn't bother with prayer? I remember at that time it challenged me um, and sort of ooh, sort of hit me between the eyes at that time. And it must have done because one of those quotes that has stuck in my head all down these years. A practical atheist. That's quite some description of a Christian who doesn't bother with prayer. Now going back to Daniel, he was living in a place and within the culture where all the supports, the signs and the symbols of his faith had been taken away from him. Well, rather, he'd been taken with others into exile in Babylon. So what could he do? There was now no temple, um, there was no reading publicly of the scriptures, all those things that would have been happening back in Jerusalem, nothing of that remained. He was in exile in Babylon He could still pray. Whatever else could be taken away from him, from God's people, he could still be praying. And that's what he does. And so we find in Daniel 6, 10b, three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. We know the story. We know it cost him. His commitment to prayer got him into deep trouble. So there's a question to pause over. What does your commitment to prayer cost you? What does it cost you in terms of time? 
I remember a few years ago in Pinna Road down in Exeter, I was uh, talking about prayer and fasting and saying, well, there are a number of things you can fast from, actually. Um, fasting in the biblical time, uh, a meal would take hours to prepare and to serve. So giving up a meal meant that you freed up hours in which you could pray. You know, it wasn't a fast food culture where you can fast from a McDonald's in five minutes these days, but it's more than five minutes that's required in prayer. But what does it cost us? What about, I said, if you gave up your favorite soap opera for a week and spent time in prayer? There were ripples that went around and cries of, that's not fair. Would you give up, pastor, watching rugby in terms of uh, giving up time for prayer? Oh, you got me there, I thought. That's different, watching rugby and watching the soap opera. But you see the point I'm making. What does your commitment to prayer sometimes cost you? What does it mean You give up in order to spend time. It's clear that Daniel, too, was disciplined in his praying. Three times a day, just as he always did. This wasn't a a one-off thing. He heard the decree, so he thought he'd do this to those who had done it and go off and pray three times a day. This was something that he did on a regular basis. It reminded effort of him. Hundreds of years later, we meet with another man of prayer. His name is Jesus. Now, I haven't got time to go into the details here, but let me talk about the prayer life of the three S's that was Jesus. Jesus, having been brought up in the synagogues of his day, would have his set times for prayer. And it would be, you know, a regular through the day. I always remember, uh, some years ago, I was in Khartoum in Sudan. Uh, some of you may remember the Pontypridd and Rhonda um, Christian concern that we had, and we sent um, some aid out in the Ethiopian famine way back in 1987, would you believe? And I, I, I went out to uh, Khartoum with three others, and I was trying to get some sleep. And at some hour in the middle of the night, there was this almighty noise, and apparently it was the call to prayer coming from the minaret. I didn't understand a word of it, but it said, there is no God but Allah, his true prophet Muhammad, and it is better to pray than to sleep. Do you know what they meant it? You could not have slept through the noise that that was making. And then, in the next few minutes, you could hear footsteps as people had got up, answered the call to prayer, and gone to pray. I felt challenged by that. They were so disciplined, they'd even get up in the middle of the night because it was time to pray. Jesus had his set times for prayer. We also read he had his special times for prayer. Those times when he'd have half a night in prayer or more. He didn't have a half of night in prayer every night. He had his set times through the week on which he would build his special times before calling the disciples, for instance. Um, in Gethsemane, for example, there are many instances where we read of Jesus going away in order to have a special time of prayer, on basis of which then we read him at the spontaneous times of prayer. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you revealed this too, you know. I think that's the right way around. If we say, oh, I only pray when I feel like it, when I feel like being spontaneous, that probably won't happen very often. The set and the special, the spontaneous, and I feel that's a good model for prayer, not only for individuals, but for a church as well. You have your set times, and then there are special needs. You have your special times, out of which then flows quite naturally the more spontaneous times. But what I want to do this morning is to look about the content of Daniel's prayers a bit more. And ask what made him want to pray. We've already done some of this this morning. 
Daniel gave thanks. We've already asked ourselves, what is it that we have got to thank God about? Remember, Daniel was not in circumstances of his own choosing. He didn't want to be there in Babylon. But that's where he was. And many of us in our lives, we find ourselves sometimes in circumstances that we certainly would not have volunteered for, that if we'd got any choice in the matter, we'd say, no thanks very much. But that's where we are. In those circumstances, Daniel was still able to count his blessings, naming them one by one. I'm giving my age away here that I know that song, I know. Pray, rejoice always, wrote Paul. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Different aspect of prayer. Let me take you to what the Apostle John wrote. 1 John 5, 14, 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. How many of us share John's confidence? How many of us could say, oh, I could have written that? How do we know what those things are that are according to his will, that when we pray for them, we will always get? Let me suggest to you that for Daniel, it meant reading and studying scripture. So glad of that little song we sang, that read the Bible and pray. The two go together. And Daniel was reading scripture. He was reading, in particular, Jeremiah the prophet from some years before. But let me read to you in Daniel 9, 1 to 3, where we pick this up. Because in Daniel 9, we have an example of what moved and motivated Daniel in prayer. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. Here's what Jeremiah said. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now in Daniel 9, we find that Daniel's prayer praises God for his justice. He acknowledges that God was completely within his rights to send his people into exile to punish them for their sins. We find in this prayer, he confesses those sins before God. 
And that Daniel is concerned for the God's reputation among the nations. And he ends like this. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous. But because of your great mercy, O Lord... Listen, forgive, hear, and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Here we have in Daniel 9 a clear example of Scripture inspiring a prayer that otherwise Daniel might not have been emboldened to pray. Because this prayer arises out of a particular tension that I think we as Christian disciples sometimes feel, but don't always acknowledge. What am I talking about? God's word promised something. God's word promised that after 70 years, God would restore his people back to the land. Daniel looks at his calendar. He starts calculating when the promise was made. It's just about 70 years. He looks around. Any signs of this promise being fulfilled? None at all. He is living in the tension of God promising one thing, and yet it's not happening. So what does he do? Well, he could say, oh, well, Jeremiah must have got it wrong. <laughs> or he could have put his head in his sand and say, well, if that's what God promised, he'll bring it about in his own time. But as for me, I'm just going to carry on as normal. No, what we find happens is that Daniel, reading the scripture, reading circumstances, seeing that they don't match up, he falls onto his knees in prayer. The tension of the discontinuity between scripture and life moved and motivated him to pray even more. Time was running out. If this 70-year thing was going to be honoured, then God had to move now. (laughs) And so he prays this magnificent prayer recorded in Daniel chapter 9. So I find myself asking, what do I, what do we know of that sort of tension? When we read something in scripture and think, hang on, that doesn't make much sense. That doesn't happen in real life. Thrown up some examples and we could go and look at some more. But here are the ones that were laid, I think, on my heart in this week for this morning. First of all, victory over sin. Paul says in Galatians 5, So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the cravings of the flesh, the desires of the sinful nature. There is a promise of Scripture. You recognize perhaps in your life, well, I I, I keep falling and failing on that one. You need to let that tension, God's promise, your own experience, bring that tension to the Lord in prayer and cry out to him. 
with praise, with thanksgiving, with confession. Lord, I want that verse to be true in my experience, that I might bring greater glory to your name. Scripture promises victory over sin for the believer who will walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that tension? And if you feel you're failing in that, I've been a pastor long enough to know what the answer is for each one of you, by the way. Then pray. Joy in adverse circumstances. Here's what James said. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Have you ever wondered, what was James on when he wrote that? Consider it pure joy. It's sometimes hard enough just to grit our teeth and grin and bear it. When adverse circumstances come our way. James saw it as an occasion of joy because of what God could do in our lives through those adverse circumstances and making us more like Jesus. So the key to joy in adverse circumstances is to share God's agenda for your life and my life to be made more like Jesus. If that's our passion, Lord, I want to be made like you, then he will use circumstances to knock off the rough edges, to refine and hone your faith, and build you up. (laughs) So, if you say, well, I don't know joy in adverse circumstances... It's a gift of God for those who will seek it and get down on their knees and pray about it. And it's a wonderful witness to the world around us when they see Christians who are joyful in circumstances that make them have every right to be miserable. Christians are meant to be different, are we not? And to show that difference, there's no more difference than a joy... Even in the difficult circuit, I'm not saying well, you don't shed it, just like Paul says, no, we do not grieve as those who have no, I'm not talking about happiness, I'm talking about a deep down joy that's so different that the world doesn't know anything about, but should see. Do you feel that tension? Lord, I need some of that joy in my circumstances at the moment. The tension between the promise of scripture and the circumstances of your life moves you then to pray. Forgiving others. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. This is something that Christians do. I was talking to another minister some times ago, and in that church there were all sorts of issues and problems. And people in that church had grievances against one another, And some of those grievances, I've no doubt, were absolutely legitimate. If a church does not do grace, if a church does not do forgiving each other, tell you what, it is not a church. I've had people in tears, but pastor, I can't forgive him for what he did. I know you can't. It's impossible in the flesh. Here again is something supernatural. And if you're saying to the Lord, Lord, I can't forgive. Claim the promise of scripture and he will come and enable you to be forgiving. 
It's not something you may find in and of yourself to be able to do. But allow the tension, the recognition. Here's what scripture says. Here's how I feel about it. And the two don't match. Well, pray. And God will respond to that. Because we are never more like God. We are never more godly than when we forgive. Because God is a forgiving God. So you want to be like God? Forgive. An old hymn again. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich, so free? In wonder lost with trembling joy, we take the pardon of our God. And if we take it, we have to pass it on. John Wesley was talking to somebody once who said, Sir, I never forgive. John Wesley, thinking about the Lord's Prayer, forgive us as we forgive others, simply replied this, Then I hope, sir, that you never sin. Is that something to pray about? Knowledge of God's love. Ephesians 3, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Do you know what? Unless that was written in Scripture, I wouldn't be praying for others to be filled with all the fullness of God. It's a mind-blowing phrase. It's an inspired prayer. But do you not know this experience of how much God loves you? Well, you might know it in your head. It's, it's part of the gospel message. God loves you. But you see, the Spirit is given so that you might know he loves you. Something that's within. Something that's not just a matter of the head but a delight that's within your heart. And in praying for one another, praying that everybody in Kuipermine Community Church may know the love of Christ and all its length and depth and height and breadth. And to know this love that passes knowing. Paul says, I'm saying this, but words can't contain it. To know something that's unknowable. Do you need to know the love of God in your life? And you say, well, I don't know that I'm, I've never had that sort of experience. Well, let the tension between your experience and the promise of Scripture put you on your knees in prayer. That you might know the love of God. And why don't you, you know, taking home what Laura's got, pray Ephesians 3 type prayers for one another. When I was at university, um, there were some people who, you know, thought perhaps a bit too much of themselves and a bit full of themselves. And I was told, well, pray for them that God um, may reveal to them how much he loves them. I'd never thought of doing that. I was thinking, Lord, take them down a peg or two. Amen. <laughs> no, pray that they may know how much they love. You see, if somebody has a realization of how much God loves them, they will be humbled. And if that does not humble them, nothing will. Nothing more humbling than to have a sense and experience of how this great and glorious God absolutely loves you. 
And it's part of the role description of the Holy Spirit to make it real. The Holy Spirit pours out, says Paul in Romans, the knowledge of that love into our hearts. So, take hold of that. Compare it with your experience and pray into it. Now, next one very quickly. Conviction of sin. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I went out for a a meal with some other church leaders in Exeter on Thursday. We were chatting away, having a bit of banter as we do, being rude to each other in love. (laughs) And, And then we got to talking about, you know, I was asking the question, of all the ministries of God's Spirit at the moment, what does this nation most need? And I was putting a bid in for conviction of sin. Because unless people around us are convicted of their sin, they won't know they need a saviour. I sometimes worry about needs-based evangelism, where we allow the world to set the agenda in terms of evangelism. Meeting people's needs. I'm not arguing for irrelevance. But people have a need they don't feel. It's not a felt need. They're in need of a saviour from sin. And they will only feel that need if we as Christians are praying that God will do his stuff by convicting them of their need of a saviour, by convicting them of sin. And the tide in this nation, will, I believe, will only be turned if people come under conviction of sin once again. What an old-fashioned thing to pray. Hey, it's part of the Holy Spirit's role profile. It's his job description. And we look around the world around us and we see, Lord, it's your job to convict people of sin, but we don't see you doing it very much. Let's be honest. In other words, there's a disparity between our experience and what God's word says should happen. So what do we do? Oh, I know, let's give up. No. Pray, God, move in this land again and bring people to their knees so that they cry out as they once did in this land. In no four and other times before that, what must we do to be saved? I think if we feel that tension, we're beginning to feel something of what Daniel must have felt. When he looked at Scripture, he looked at the circumstances and says, these two don't match up. So he prayed. Yikes. Um, What time should I be finishing? Okay. You see... This tension generates the urgency. It inspires confidence in prayer. And we will only pray the sort of prayers that change things if we allow Scripture to fuel those prayers. Don't think me insensitive, but sometimes, you know, when I've been in with people and we're asked for praying about things and I hear a lot of prayers that are in the category of what I call praying from my wife's granny bad left toe. Rather than praying the big prayers that will make an eternal difference in people's lives. The more we fuel our hearts and our minds with scripture, 
then the greater will be our confidence in asking God in prayer, especially in those circumstances that seems to be asking too much. Then I believe we will be able to say a huge and hearty amen to what John wrote. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. The asking must not come from us, but from the inspired scriptures that reveal his overarching magnificent will. You see, when Jesus said, ask whatever you want and you will get it, he was speaking out of experience. But then he never asked anything that wasn't in tune with God's will. That's the challenge. And perhaps that's why Daniel had no problem in praying three times a day. How often do you pray? I'll leave it with you. Amen.